want to do it in the least imposing and most painless way possible. Here's the deal. It's called the Buddy Pledge. You give us your support for 12 months, and we give you access to the most eclectic music, as well as the best and thought-provoking news, talk, and community affairs. Sound good? See it in your heart to pledge a minimum of $10 per month. Each payment will automatically be deducted from your credit or bank statement, so there's no reminders needed. Just join us for a one-year membership and go online at www.give2wbai.org. That's give numeral 2 wbaiorg and be part of our vibrant community. WBAI New York. This is WBAI and this is Fred Eagle Smith for WBAI in New York. Stick it in your ear. Hi, this is Valley Forge, Berkshire, Sequoia. Valley Forge, Berkshire, Sequoia. This is Tom Central. Channel open for executive order AUC 3423. Listen to this, boys. I gotta talk to you. Hi, Johnny. What is this? What are you doing? Pretty good stuff, huh? I organized a hockey team for Chris and some of his friends, huh, Chris? We have our first practice this afternoon. You are looking at the coach. Call it off. Take that stuff in the garage, okay? This going to be an accident. Call it off. Call it off? What for? Chris has been looking forward to this all week, huh? He's really coming out of his shell, John. Wait. I got to talk to you. Nourishment, and then we'll hit the island. No, no, listen to me. Call it off. It's going to be an accident. Call it off. Well, ridiculous. We always get on that pond until March. What the hell is the matter with you? You want to kill your own son? I'm scared, Dad. For Christ's sake, John. Don't be scared. Just go eat your cookies. Don't you know who I am? Of course I know who you are. You think I'd have you come into my son's life without checking you out? But I hired you for your abilities as a teacher, not as a fortune teller. Now, don't give me any arguments. The ice is gonna break!
That was the kind of world we made. That was the kind of world we made. World we made. World we made. no idea i have no idea why i'm here i don't know what i'm doing you know talking about this uh i saw something they saw something there was a, a lot of light that's all i remember There's no place to hide. shift again night 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 shift night shift again 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 night
I'll be damn late. You are tuned to listener-sponsored radio, WBAI 99.5 FM in New York and on the web at WBAI.org. I'm Mike Sargent. I am actually here with the infamous, the one and only Joe Masiri. Joe Masiri, welcome back to the show. It's been a minute. Yes, thank you, Michael. All right, so we actually have a very special show, Joe, and the guest that's coming on here with us, the very special guest that's coming on with us, has been here twice before, but you weren't here, Joe. You just weren't here. I've been in the ether. You were not here. So you have not yet experienced everything that is Dr. Kelly Elizabeth Wright. Dr. Kelly Elizabeth Wright, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Okay. So, Joe Masiri, I told you a little bit about why we brought back Dr. Uh, Kelly Elizabeth Wright. And uh, I I like to call her, well, I like to call her Kelly. I like to call her Dr. Wright. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I love love saying that we have Dr. Wright here on the show. But um, we're going to talk about words, which is something that we've done before. But we're going to talk about something very specific having to do with words and a very specific having to do with the, uh, let's just say, the semantic changes and and the evolution of words and and what has happened. Because last week on the show, I talked about the fact that the quote unquote word of the year was gaslighting. And it was what Oxford said was the word of the year. And other dictionaries have said it's a different word. Uh, and a caller called up and was like, why do you talk from Oxford? That's, uh, you know, there are lots of other words, a lot of, you know, they, like he lambasted <laughs> me and he said, and, and why aren't you on live every week? So he was really, well, you know, you uh, probably would deserve uh, it. Thank you, so Joe. there you go. I appreciate the support. But, uh, Dr. <laughs> Kelly Elizabeth Wright is got something very special that she's part of. But before that, I told you, and for those who are listening who do not know who Dr. Wright is, Dr. Wright is a ratio-linguist. Now, I love it, but Joe said, what's that? I understand the linguist part. Well, I know what a linguist is. I didn't... Yes. (laughs) Can you enlighten him, Sure, yes. Okay, so I am an experimental sociolinguist, um, and I do... Ratio-linguistics is part of what I do, so... So linguistics is the scientific study of language. Um, it, language is really big, right? It, it, it's everything. It's in our brains. It's in our hands. It's in our faces. So people who study that scientifically come at it from a lot of different perspectives. Ratiolinguistics, part of that perspective is how our body, our embodiment, part of our, our race and how we present that to the world um, affects how your language use is perceived. So that could be speech, writing, or sign, and how that interacts with your body and how people see your body and how your body moves through the world and also the history of race as a thing that's just understood by people and has its own social meaning. That's the short answer. Doesn't feel like a short answer. Doesn't feel like a short answer. No, no, no. But Hmm. you know, every time you give an answer to that, I have so many questions, and and now I have a couple more questions that I probably haven't asked you before. But what's interesting about 
what you're doing, what you're studying, or what jumps out at me right away when you say it is that you said your body, you know, and, and, you know, there, there, I'd love for you to expand a little bit on that because I know, for instance, you know, uh, we live in a time of like, let's just say extreme division. Though, you know, it's not like this is anything new for America. America's always been like this. So, but it social media has amplified us seeing, let's just say, lots of people behaving badly. Lots of people, uh, let's just say, expressing their bias. And people have reactions to words. But what's the body component there it, from both the person who says it and the person who's on the receiving end. What, what, what would you say about that? Well, you can't produce language without a body. So it has to come out of you. I mean, if we're, if we're talking about it from literally a production standpoint, it's, there's, there's a physics to that, right? It has to issue forth from your physical embodiment <laughs> in some way. You're either writing it down, you're painting it on a wall, you're screaming it into the void, you're, <laughs> right? you're, you're producing language with a body and, and bodies have meaning. They have history. You are tall or short, you're young or old, you're big or small, you are able or not able to do certain things in certain spaces. And so our bodies really condition and control how we are able to make meaning how we are able to make meaning it's not it's not it and that it doesn't have anything to do with what is going on that is like before anything that has to do with what's going on inside your mind your intention all of that i mean you think about a story stories you've heard about people who are in comas and they come out of comas and they talk about how they had all of these like very intense and uh, uh, cognitive experiences at that time. Your mind is running, but your body is not, <laughs> right? That is, there is all of this profound connection between the body and linguistic experiences before you even add in another person who begins to perceive you. And that person who is perceiving you is also in a body. <laughs> and that body has its own history and meaning and experiences. And so that's the ratio linguistics part of it. I mean, the connection to embodiment was already part of our theory in linguistics. But ratio linguistics really hones in in the same way that like critical race theory and legal practice began to hone in on, hey, so people who are in certain bodies being perceived by people in other types of bodies really have a hard time existing because they have to produce language all day long. And because their bodies are browner than others, everything that they do is at a you know, disadvantage it doesn't, it doesn't matter what their language is, how it is actually structured, which like flies in the face of lots of arguments, lots of argu most arguments of just do it right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah. That's the hmm. short answer. Doesn't oh, that's feel like a short, a short answer. answer. Hmm. No, no, no. Feel like but a short answer. <laughs> it, it, you know, every time you give an answer to that, I have so many questions and, I, and now I have a couple more questions that I probably haven't asked you before. But what's interesting about what you're doing, what you're studying, or what jumps out at me right away when you say it is that you said your body, 
you know, and, and, you know, there, there, I'd love for you to expand a little bit on that because I know for instance, you know, uh, we live in a time of like, let's just say extreme division though, you know, it's not like this is anything new for America. America has always been like this. So, but it's social media has amplified us seeing, let's just say lots of people behaving badly, lots of people, uh, let's just say expressing their bias and people have reactions to words, but what's the body component there from both the person who says it and the person who's on the receiving end? What, what, What would you say about that? Well, you can't produce language without a body. So it has to come out of you. I mean, if we're, if we're talking about it from literally a production standpoint, it's, there's, there's a physics to that, right? It has to issue forth from your physical embodiment <laughs> in some way. You're either writing it down, you're painting it on a wall, you're screaming it into the void, you're, <laughs> right? you're, you're producing language with a body. And, and bodies have meaning. They have history. You are tall or short. You're young or old. You're big or small. You are able or not able to do certain things in certain spaces. And so our bodies really condition and control how we are able to make meaning, how we are able to make meaning. It's not, it's not it in that it doesn't have anything to do with what is going on. That is like before anything that has to do with what's going on inside your mind, your intention, all of that. I mean, you think about a story, stories you've heard about people who are in comas and they come out of comas and they talk about how they had all of these like very intense and uh, uh, cognitive experiences at that time. Your mind is running, but your body is not (laughs) right. That is, there is all of this profound connection between the body and linguistic experiences before you even add in another person who begins to perceive you And that person who is perceiving you is also in a body. (laughs) And that body has its own history and meaning and experiences. And so that's the ratio linguistics part of it. I mean, the connection to embodiment was already part of our theory in linguistics. But ratio linguistics really hones in in the same way that like critical race theory and legal practice began to hone in on, hey, so people who are in certain bodies being perceived by people in other types of bodies really have a hard time existing because they have to produce language all day long. And because their bodies are browner than others, everything that they do is at a you know, disadvantage it doesn't, it doesn't matter what their language is, how it is actually structured, which like flies in the face of lots of arguments, lots of argu- most arguments of just do it right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Thank you.
so I was wondering when you were talking about body language and, and communicating, uh, if that was something that we have maybe lost as a species as we've evolved because when you look at primates in the jungle and how they communicate with each other it's a very complex uh, body language and sounds that they make and, and you almost feel like it's, it's a more earnest heartfelt uh, attempt of what they're trying to communicate and that is as we evolved as, as a species especially when you look at something like the Chinese language where one word can have so many different meanings based on inflections and tones uh, that it's become harder for us to communicate. I think that there is certainly something to be said when we look at things of variation, especially when we consider modalities. So we, we use gesture um, all the time. It's, it's certainly part of our language. It's part of our, our, our micro expressions, the way we use our faces um, in English, how your tone shifts when we communicate something um, like, yeah, no, versus no, yeah, or whatever, right? Like these things have the uh, stump English language learners because we don't codify them as part of our linguistic structure, but they are part of our communicative practices. So when you look at other languages that very much value that part of their linguistic structure, that um, what we as linguists would call supra-segmental levels, things like intonation um, and, and, and these other parts of the language, we. Supra-segmental. Supra-segmental. A segment being something like a syllable, right, or a word or a phony. Like, you go, you go down from, like, a sentence has clauses, and those clauses have parts, and those parts have words in them, and those words have parts, because a word has something like ing put on the end of it, and, like, that's a word part, right? And <laughs> you go down, 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 down to the structure, like an atom, right? like an element, like a piece of material has structure, you go down, but you can also go up, right? So when you're talking about like Chinese tones, you have like a, you have, that's like this higher level segment that they actually order and teach and make part of their language. And they make a productive space where new words can be formed and variation can be formed and we can do like extra meaning here. And everyone in the language community participates in that meaning and learns about it. Whereas in English, everyone in the, in the speech community is participating in that, but it's not codified. Mm. So it isn't part of what we're writing about or learning about or teaching about. And so it is just an understood way of being, understood ways of being. So if people who aren't getting it, you'd be like, that kid's weird. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there are certainly weird kids in China, right? It doesn't like solve everything, but it's just yes, one layer I, of something. I, I just want to add on what you were just saying, because my sister's an educator, and one of the things that the teachers have been talking about uh, in teaching language and reading and so forth is uh, the need for phonics, which is all about the, the sound of words. And 
you know, when you think about how that hasn't been really taught or enforced for so many years, and we have these problems with with language and and kids raised on cell phones and stuff, I I tend to agree that that that's a problem with our society. That that teaching phonics is almost like teaching. Um, Oh, now I'm having a, a, a brain fart. Uh, this is called a senility. Just so, so you know. yes, uh, you know, um, teaching the uh, teaching about our government and the and and the constitution and all that. It it really undercuts the foundation our in our ability to communicate. Can I ask you though, as somebody who has an accent, right? We talked about this thing before we started. You definitely sound like the city you're from, from New York City. Hmm. Um. Do you think that if you went into a phonics classroom, people would try to change the way you sound as an adult or a child? Or do you think that if you went into a classroom, people would allow you to sound like your city still? I don't know. And I, I will add that. That's really, a damn good question, Joe. I just want to say Yeah. Uh, I, I find myself to be a bit of, of a chameleon because when I've lived in other places – for a period of time, I've noticed that I've adopted the the accents and some of the tones and and infliction. So yeah, we all do that. Yeah. So, but I don't know. I I, I don't know. So I, I would assume if I was learning another language, uh, in a way that's trying to change the way I talk or sound, I I would be curious if I did a. Uh, another language and maintain some of the New York accents in, in speaking it, which would be You funny. mean like Sean Connery when he speaks Russian? Like, <laughs> you know, it's like he still sounds Scottish. Okay, yeah. I yeah, so this is the thing. So this is interesting. So you, when you look at the English language learning world, most of the people who learn English in school are taught three versions of it. It is either British English, Australian English, or American English. And those hmm. people are taught to sound like very specific places in those areas. So you don't learn any variety of American English you choose. You don't say, I want to sound like I'm from L.A. or I'm from Louisiana or from <laughs> right uh, Chicago, right? You don't get to pick what city you want to sound like you're from in America. You sound like you're from, you are a freaking Ohio newscaster. That's how they teach you to sound. Generic, generic American. Generic, generic, generic. They, they want you to sound like a standard American speaker. The same way if you are learning British English in the colonized world or in uh, the Commonwealth, excuse me. You get, to, <laughs> you get to, you sound like London. You sound, you, you, you speak received pronunciation. You learn London English. You learn the standard dialect of English. So, but you don't sound that way if you are from Bangalore or Jakarta or, <laughs> you know, um, these, these other cities, like these big cities where you absolutely have an accent. So people who speak Indian American English or Indian British English or right from the colonized world, they, they certainly bring their cities with them into this standardized dialect that they're asked to learn that that is that is written in all these textbooks 
And it's the same going the other direction, right? When you learn as an uh, uh, English speaker, you learn German or French or any other dialect. It's the dialect that's in the textbook is the one that is at the top. Well, you know, it's very fascinating what, what you're saying. Uh, and, and I think it's a good segue into the quote unquote American dialect society. But, but I think that, um, you know, many times in my life, people ask me, where are you from? Uh, I, I don't understand your accent. You know, that's later on in life from other people saying, you sound like a white guy. But <laughs> so, you know, but it's interesting, you know, when, when you, if you can choose in your, uh, your, your, whatever your, geo geo map your google maps or whatever you can choose different voices different accents and different words if you choose australian like i like australian sometimes i'll i'll get all my directions in australian but there are certain words that don't exist or they don't pronounce that way in australia even though it's a common word so you'll get you know some something that that you think of as one thing, but you're like, wow, they completely mispronounced that for me. So uh, I'm, I'm curious also now when you say dialect for, for those who don't know, what is the definition of dialect? Oh, you're asking me. Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I, yes doctorate. How would you define how would you, dialect? How would, well, how would you define it? How would y'all define it? Well, you know, the way I would define dialect, and it's because it's something I never, no one's ever asked me how to define dialect. But the, the way I would define dialect is a, a regional accent uh, or or that might include uh, colloquialism. So my, my question is, you know, it's a, re, it's a, I say a regional accent because, for instance, you know, we, we're going to talk about s- semantic uh uh, evolu- semantic change or semantic evolution. Like one of the words in, in, I was looking up some things for this, you know, like words that English words that made it to the dictionary in 2022. One of them is hangry. Now, hangry is just a dialect of the word hungry. But when you say hangry, you know, I like you're not just hungry, you're hangry. Now, for myself as a New Yorker, I know, especially women of color, Okay, used to say this to me, uh, and this is a little dated now, but this is a dialectal thing where you see a woman and she's really kind of hitting on you. She hungry. That girl hungry. Now, I've heard that. I've heard that from, you know, and again, it's 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 not only a dialect, not only is it local, but it's also gender specific. You know, Joe talked about, you know, Chinese language. There are a lot of languages like Spanish where, you know, you, you mm-hmm. pronounce the word slightly differently based on the gender. So uh, I, I am, of course, fascinated by what you do. Um, but tell me a little bit about the American dialect society and what is an American dialect, considering what you just said, how there are so many different dialects across the country. Well, hold on. I want to hear what Joe thinks like dialect. Yeah, yeah Joe, language. what do you think? Like, di- yeah, oh, that's right. Joe, what's your, what's your definition of dialect, Joe? Sorry about that. Well, it's it's interesting because I think uh, dialect is the uh, homogenization of a specific language that has woven into it uh, either speech patterns and or a previous existing language of 
people from a, a specific area. So that, you know, C Caribbean language, uh, Creole in the islands, as opposed to the way Creole evolved into Cajun in, in Louisiana. And that there are similarities, but there are some uh, words that are, you know, totally indigenous to those areas in the world. And some words that have been incorporated in, but the sound has changed because of the speech patterns of those people in the area. Especially being that, I think Louisiana is a great state because it had been owned by the French. It had been conquered by the Spanish. Uh, the Caribbean influences, the African influences, the indigenous Indians, and then the Americans. So that's like one of the biggest melting pots in, in America. A linguistic melting pot. Yes. So okay. A dialectical, a dialectal <laughs> yeah. melting pot. Okay. So indeed, indeed. Kelly, all right. So okay. now, now, no, this jo is great. wait, this is great. Jo okay. Joe, wait, Joe, <laughs> Joe made me want to reframe the question. Yeah, no. And you, and you zeroed in. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so there are several, like, I guess, theoretical definitions of the difference between a language and a dialect, but it it is essentially a, a, a political one. So, so uh, there's a... When a, you say political, do yes, you mean so the body a, politic? The, a the famous, politic? A fa there is a famous definition that says the difference between a, a, a dialect is or a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. Hmm. So German has an army and a navy. Chinese has an army and a navy. Polish army and a navy. Right? You get it, right? So what doesn't have an army and a navy? Cajun French. <laughs> right? Um evolutionarily the processes that led to Cajun French and German are not different, right? Person mm. to person, time over time, individuals, what makes the actual language, what, what makes the system that we are describing different from each other, political distinction. What we mm. consider to be a language with a capital L is because it has texts, it's been codified. It's been used in school. It's been used in courts. It has a material history. It has living speakers, right? So indigenous languages, there are hundreds of them, hundreds of them that are still spoken today, but many of many people consider them all to be extinct or, or ancient, but they are on every continent, <laughs> right? <laughs> There are indigenous mm. people living on every continent, including Antarctica. Um, right? Still speaking their languages. Um, but so it, so when we think about what a dialect is versus what an accent is versus what a variety is, it becomes a question of who is using it and where and how they're using it and how the community of the users feels about it which then becomes an even murkier distinction because not everyone who uses a variety has a shared feeling about how they use it. And African-American language is one very prime example of that because to even begin to define that variety, you have to begin to define blackness, which then is already like this, like how do you get everybody in a room to say like, how do you feel about this 
language, these languages, how, where, where, and when do we start drawing lines? Do you want an army? Like, no, <laughs> would you like an army and a navy so we can put you in the dictionary? Like it, it becomes like quite difficult. Um, we can talk about the American dialect society if you want. No, no, no. Well, we are obviously, are, but, but, but no, no, no. You're, you're making me really wonder about what the components of, of, uh, codification of language and words are. And, and, you know, you, you, you mentioned. If you wonder something. for too long, you'll end up with a PhD and you'll get stuck in it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> see, Joe, do you see why I have her on the show? Yes. Yes. She's, she's amazing. Right. Okay. So, so here's my question now. Um, yes, I do want to know about the American dialect society, but Joe makes me want to reframe that question, uh, in what Joe mentioned specifically about in, indigenous language and language that may have started one place, but grew into its own thing. You know, the Caribbean in general, every, every Caribbean accent is, in my opinion, it's a derivative of, you know, you know, generations of whatever, you know, whatever the word for the mutation of language is. Okay. It's, it's that, but what's also interesting and, and I'm just touching upon this. I had a Italian, uh, I used to have a TV show and I had Italian. She was like the only, you know, w white female because I, I mostly went after uh, critics of color and, 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 and women because she was a woman, you know, because they, they, they didn't have those voices, but she was Italian, like Italian from Italy, but she learned English in Great Britain. So when she spoke English, it was very like, British, you know, because that's how she learned English. You know, if she said, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, it sounded like, oh my God, it's Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio. It sounded completely different with her accent. Like his whole name sounded like a perfume. But when she spoke English, <laughs> it was really uh, very British, very specific. And, and it struck me, you know, we've all seen, you know, black Brits, you know, speak English and we've all seen, you know, those Africans and we've seen Indians who speak with that British accent, you know, so there's the, the dialect you learn from, but I'm also curious about that, that codification. Do you, do you, do you, do you feel like that's a blanket statement? It's always comes down to something political in terms of power, the power to enforce this as the way to speak versus, uh, you know, all these dialects. So I ask you all of that in, how could something call itself the American Dialect Society? And what does that encompass? Okay, so the question about power, does it always come down to power? Kind of. I mean, you might imagine that. Okay, so here's a good example. I just, I just had the pleasure of teaching for the Fulbright Association which is, is um, you know, involved with the Department of Education here um, in the United States. And um, I worked with foreign language teaching associates. So these were individuals from the wider world who have come to the United States on a Fulbright to teach their first languages to U.S. college students. Right. That's like a that's like their service that they'll do as part of their opportunity to learn here in the United States. So a lot of these individuals um, shared like their their perspectives of having of having to teach a standardized version of their varieties, 
which is not, or their languages, which is like not actually the, the their di- their home dialect or the variety of their language that they know. Um, however, all of the, all of the teaching associates who were there to teach Arabic, modern standard Arabic, talked about how they have to, they have to teach their own dialect in the classroom, that this is how it's done because modern standard Arabic is not a spoken dialect. Mm. It is because the Arabic speaking world is gigantic. It is a significant portion of the map when you spread it out and modern standard Arabic is an administrative language. It is like a lingua franca. It is something that it is for courts and professions and it is, it is written. So if you were actually, you can learn Arabic that way, but if you were actually to walk into a, you know, <laughs> try and buy bread <laughs> or labna or whatever you were looking for, you, you couldn't, you could walk in and it would sound like you were literally reading the dictionary. Hello, I would like one yogurt, please. Like it would, lo- it would sound terrible. You would sound like a Siri. A foreigner. Yeah, you would, I mean, not even a foreigner. You would sound like a machine, right? Because it would be like reading from a page. <laughs> and so when you teach, when, when you teach Arabic, you teach standard and a dialect side by side because it's like how to write and how to speak. Hmm. And, and the teacher gets to be a human who's like, here is my Arabic where I am from. Here is how you speak it in Tunisia. Here is how you speak it in Morocco. Here is how you speak it in Sri Lanka. Here is how you speak it. Here is how you use it on the page. So there's nothing like this in the American Dialect Society. It's like you go to Kansas, you go to Kansas, and you say most of the world in the language learning classroom. Fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Which recognizes the separation between the human and the author in the language learning classroom. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Segway to your power. Where's power there? <laughs> okay. So the person, the person teaching their language can't, is not present in almost every situation of learning. So, so I, I have no choice. If I want to become someone who teaches my language, my own language out in the world, I have to teach it up here. I can't teach it in the way I use it. That this is why I'm not a writing instructor. <laughs> Cuz I couldn't exist there. <laughs> right? This is why I don't do literary criticism because I couldn't exist there. It was I can't do my language up here. I'd come back down to being a human. Right? Okay. The American Dialect Society um has very recently changed what they cover. Or well, not the American Dialect Society. The American Dialect Society and the publication that I write for are separate entities. Um, the American Dialect Society has always been rather expansive in its coverage of um, the languages of the Americas. America being the continent, right? North America. Um, so, and, but it is certainly been traditionally more speech focused so dialect certainly has to do with um 
speech, analyses of speech is mostly what they publish or are interested in. Now, <coughs> this is the word of the year vote. So we're not just talking about like how people sound. We're certainly talking about the ways in which people use words um, and words that maybe emerge from certain dialects are interesting, but it's not what's prioritized. Um, it's not the only thing that the society is interested in. There's lots of things to go look at at their website and please do. Um, but this vote is actually the oldest word of the year vote in the United States. It's been running since 1990 and we do our votes somewhat differently from the others. So you mentioned gaslighting as being chosen as the word of the year. Um, we also, that was seen, Oxford. That was Oxford. Yeah. That was Oxford. We've also seen Miriam Webster come out with goblin mode. Now the way that Miriam Webster does it is they choose candidates based on lookups in the dictionary so who types in what online and says what does this mean so they for the first time this year gave candidates um gave three the top top three candidates to the world and let people vote on them um people chose goblin mode out of a top three um i maybe have those other others written down somewhere but um the the way we do it um, and have been doing it since 1990 involves first waiting for the year to end. Um, we we always have this vote in the first days of January. Um, that that's when it's held. It's held with our annual meeting, which always occurs in the first days of January. So we wait for the year to conclude before we look at what its words have done. Um, that is, you know, our purpose reasoning. For that's a day. very novel idea. Until the <laughs> year's done. Hey, Indeed. um, and, and so, you know, and, and, and so Miriam Webster does looks at, look, looks at lookups, right? That's their purpose reasoning. Oxford has a method that I have forgotten that they use. We, we all have different ways of doing it. Lots of, lots of other organizations and people do their word of the year lists. Um, but so for ours though, we have always had this nomination session and vote that occur at our annual meeting. Those sessions are, and have been open to the public, but our annual meetings are always at like some random hotel um, in some random city co-located with the Linguistic Society of America's annual meeting. And so while people aren't specifically excluded, they also aren't specifically included either. And so for the last three years, we've been making um, efforts to include the general public in the nomination and voting process. So um, if people are maybe interested, we'll have some ways that they can nominate words for words of the year, but we might want to have more of a discussion about that um, ongoing here. Uh, if you have questions, I have lots of things to say. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I, well, I'll let Joe go first. Joe, do you have any questions about the voting and how can people do it? How, how can people like this is, this is the, officially the American dialects vote of the year. Now, wh when does the actual voting conclude? When do people need to get their vote in? How do, how do people vote? If yeah, they okay, think there's so a word they heard a lot. I have a, I have a, 
a Bitly link, and I can I can share it with you. You can put it online. If I'll put it all right now, if you for those who are listening, you can go to our Facebook page. That's N I T E S H I F T Night Shift on Facebook, and the Bitly link will be there. But go ahead. And it's b i t dot l y forward slash twenty twenty two w o t y wody word of the year w o t y. Um, so yeah, so 2022 Wody and yeah, the, the nomination session ends on December 28th at 5 PM. And then the vote takes place on January 5th. So, and hopefully it will be live streamed on YouTube for folks to join in. Hmm. Is, is there a big, uh, frenzy like the concept? constitutional congress of people fighting over their words it can get quite lively so the (laughs) in-person session the in-person session usually involves um drinking the the world's well the world's world's linguists who are already quite hammered show up in a ballroom um and i'm I'm picturing this yep no you should it's a lot of old people this is here they are yep Mm -hmm. yeah The way that you're not far off. Okay. We show up in a ballroom, 5.30, day three of a conference, hungover, drunk. We get there. (laughs) Um, Everybody has something to say. There are microphones. We line up and we all, when we say it. Um, And there's, there's clapping and screaming. Um, And then with the way we used to do it is we literally voted. People put their hands in the air and everybody walked around and counted them. Um, there's someone who does like live notes, um, and they're really entertaining. Uh, that's very good. Globe <laughs> of you. Very, very good. That was like, that was like how we did it for a whole bunch of years. Um, before screens, there was paper. Okay. Got it. All right. Wait, now, oh, all right. That brings, begs the question. How long have you been a member? How long have I been a member? Yes. Um, of the American Dialect Society. Of yes. I have been, I have been the American Dialect Society's data czar for three years. That wow. is a role that involves, um, collecting, analyzing, reporting, and archiving all of the nominees, which are words wow. of this process. And then I write for the, um, among the new words, which is a quarterly publication in, the um, journal American Speech, which is where we report on the Word of the Year nominees. Um, we do that for two of our four editions each year. Um, and so I've been a co-editor of that for the last three years. Um, and I, I love it. It's a great job. I'm a data czar because I'm everything flows through me and is reported in my image. I'm a data czar <laughs> and everything flows through me. Okay. That, that, that's a t-shirt right there. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, and then people can, you said that they can go to that link and like I said, you can go to the Facebook. Now, let me, let me just ask you a couple questions because all of you, this for Joe, me. You asked Joe if he had questions and he just. Oh, Joe, you have a question? Uh, no, I'm pretty good on that. I think fig- okay. I asked about the drinking at the, at the event. <laughs> yes, the, yes, the important question. The important question. All right, now, all right, I have a few things I just want to run through here because it is uh, Night Shift and I do feel that life is like science fiction. So there are things that, you know, when you get into a topic, uh, and again, in this case, linguistics and words, uh, there are all these, you know, you can dive as deep as possible. So I did not know that there was such a thing as the global language monitor. Are you aware of this? And, and, and what, like, 
How long has that been around? Do you know about the global language monitor? I do now. Okay, see, there it is. I never knew there was such a thing as the global language monitor, which sounds, you know, all-encompassing in how do you even start such a thing. It's, it's, a, it's a company, the global language monitor, monitor, and it's based in Texas, okay? And it, it seems sort of fascinating. Now, just you just heard of it now. What's your take on something that could be even called the global language monitor. It sounds, sounds very, very fascist. It sounds very fascist and I, sci-fi I, to me. Well, I looked this up. I looked this up. I had not heard of it. Um, I, I like that. I, I introduced you, the linguist, the racial. Linguist, you did. You showed. I like that. I like I that. Something um, you didn't know. Yeah. Something I didn't know, which I don't. Which means that you know. A significant yeah. portion of the world's linguists were not involved in this. Mm-hmm. That's my thought. <laughs> Wouldn't um, say that. Um, here, here. Okay, their methodology says that they they pull words and phrases from the entire global English linguosphere. I bet you don't. How could such a site exist and people claim to be the global language? monitor how, how is that even the at the intersection technology of the world how could that even possibly be a thing oh okay well people people claim to be a lot of things um but this I mean, it's interesting i the processing is interesting i think they're taking down a lot of websites and tweets um maybe Reddit, they're certainly taking a lot of um, lookups, like things like the Google Ngram viewer, that is like Google Books, like anything that you could find on Google Books, it looks at like the words that are being used and how frequent they're using them. So they're looking at, they're doing a lot of archiving. But to claim that it is all words that are used by the entire English world, there's not enough here that is even, that there's not enough information here about how that's being defined. That may be, and because there's not that information, it leads me to believe that it is defined in a standardized way. Does that make sense? Yes. I just meant, I thought you just meant the count. I don't know. Just the actual number of words, I don't know. I, it makes sense to put together something like this. It does, because we have, we have archives of things, of the internet and other, and other things. It makes sense to put to, together something like this. We have, a, we have resources like the, the glotto log and ethno log and, and other areas of the internet that are doing the work of trying to codify or, or at least archive the world's languages. And that's very important because 
Brains don't fossilize. Some people <laughs> seem to fossilize, I will say that. <laughs> um, it's just like over time. So, so archiving something like this does make sense and it is important because every bit of language that we get is useful. When you think about recordings, they only go back not even in the last 100 years. 100 years we have recordings of sound. That's it. So everything that we have come to know about speech, we've come to know with 100 years of human history and the rest of it, we're piecing together. Like trying to understand Shakespeare. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's trying to understand mo most of human history. I mean, it's it, before recording, we have text. And before text, we have our best guess. All right. Well, since we only have a few minutes left, and I, I do want to ask you just your thoughts on, you know, how words evolve, certain words like like the word prodigy. You know, if you look at the history of the word prodigy, it used to mean the offspring of a human impregnated animal. But now it's got literally the opposite. It means, you know, you, you, you're, uh, uh, the current definition is, is a person or a, especially a child or young person have an extraordinary talent or ability. How does something like that happen? How does a word that has, you know, literally, you know, a completely different meaning become, and not just a completely different meaning, go from negative to positive? Can you, can you speak on that yeah, at all? Absolutely. So this is very much what I work on. This is in my wheelhouse about how language changes over time and the ways in which social change influences meaning change. Um, so when we look at something like racialization, my, my work in language and sport focuses exactly on this, about how a word that we've used to mean the exact same thing for all of this time comes to pick up this new, a new meaning. So when the classic example of a racialized adjective is thug, so the word thug comes in, is borrowed into English from a, an, an Indian language. And it means something like, um, you know, a heavy or someone. Um, the thuggy, the thuggy. Thuggy, right. A juvenile delinquent, essentially, which has no racial connotation and has to do with your behavior or your age or, you know, what you're doing, your, you know, nefarious intent of some kind. And then it gets racialized. It gets applied to a certain group of people. It, it's brought into English, and then it is applied to a certain group of people who are these, not, not the only people who are juvenile delinquents, not the only people who are out about with nefarious intent, but darker-skinned individuals and then Black folks, right? Um, because of the ways in which like people feel about them. There's another word that we can think about Another group of terms we can think about. Um, uh, actually, let me talk about a different one. So you said um, positive to negative or negative to positive. Changing. Like the word sick. Well, okay. So we're like sick. Sick. sick like we're changing. like, okay. Yeah, like sick, it's ill, bad. And now it's like, the sick. Like, right? Like, like sick is like awesome or good, or we like it, or it like came out of like skater culture. Um, <laughs> right. So the, 
um, when you look at like the word queer, the word mm. queer used to just mean not normal. What? So uh, me, I say that I identify with the queer community not just because I'm bisexual or biracial, but but beca- because like as somebody who was biracial, I would have been identified as queer. As somebody who is maybe neuroatypical, I would have been identified as queer. Like any, you if you had a limp, you could have been called queer. If you had a lazy eye, you could have been called queer. Like anything that was non-normative was queer with a lowercase q, right? If you were really tall, if you were really short, if you were if you were a foreigner, right? If you were somebody who had come to the United States from a non-normative country like South America or um, you know China or something in a time when those immigrants were not common, you would have been called queer, okay? And then it got turned into homosexual. Very specifically. So we had all of these groups of people who were outside of the norm. And then this word got pulled into this one group of people who was outside of the norm. It doesn't mean any of this other stuff anymore. It just means this one thing because society is changing. So it's like, we're going to have all these other words for them. Maybe we're peeling them off and putting them into slurs. Maybe we've got medical terms for the people who have limbs. Maybe we're (laughs) right and all this other stuff. Queers are queers right now and we've got other terms that are peeling off for them too now we're feeling differently or worse about them so they're getting called other stuff soft slur 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 slurs i don't want to say right and so then this word we don't like it people don't use it people don't like the word queer they don't want to call themselves that no one is identifying as queer for 125 years and then Gayness is a thing. Gayness is a thing, which is like, not is two men being gay. Women are not involved in these, (laughs) in these relationships, right? And so queer culture becomes this catch-all for anything that isn't two dudes in a relationship right? It becomes picked up again because it is the non-normative of non-heterosexual relations. So as society changes, the lexicon gets picked up and moved out of and moved into and, right? And so queer then becomes capitalized, right? It becomes an identity. It becomes something that people choose to carry into the world. It's not a label that people put on to you. It's a label you pick up for yourself and you right <laughs> move out into the world with instead of moving out into the world right i it's that is how language responds right and that and that is not even a new word that's how a word a, a set of uh, symbols and sound relations that never changed we didn't change the way we pronounced it its meaning in the dictionary it probably picked up one or two extra senses in Merriam-Webster over 400 years. Hmm. That Right? But that's language change. That's how it works. You know, as we negotiate, it grows. It just grows. <laughs> no, no. Well, you know, it's that true. is... You need the gift. You need I got to say, it, it, it's, it is fascinating. And, and, and I know you have to go, but I have to say mm. it, it's fascinating the the idea that not only that the word could change, 
Okay. And maybe this involves the body or maybe the body politic, but just that that word could change and be embraced, you know, uh, you know, for the N word, for instance, you know, within the, the black community there, you know, it's embraced in a different way. You know, it's not used in the same way, but at the same time, there's all these other slight variations, Negra, Negro that are okay. You know, they used to call us Negras and it wasn't, negative you're just a negra you know you're just a negro you know it sounds a lot like the n-word but it's not as offensive so i'm kind of fascinated with just and, and we'll have to do another show i have to have you come back but just the whole idea and if you look at the history of rastafarianism you know where they embraced something that they were uh let's just say they were it was to ostracize them but they embraced it and made it a thing you know, so it, it's something and most people don't know anything about it. They just know, oh, Rastafari, oh, you know, but it was not always something mm-hmm. that had positive connotations. So but but those who were being called that and just and, and again, coming back to queer, you know, there's you know, if you go to England and you said the word fag, it's a cigarette. OK, how did that happen? You know what I mean? How, how did that go from this to that? So I, I am fascinated by it, and I and I do appreciate the amount of time that you've given us, uh, Dr. Kelly, right? But uh, where can people find you, follow your work? You're doing all these amazing things, and you're going to be coming back in the beginning of the year, correct? All right. Yep, absolutely. So you know. Um, I am on um, Twitter, it, I guess. Um, it's still exists. Still, until, yeah, until, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are you going to go to Mastodon? Are you going there? Like, like what? Let me ask you a question. Just... Why would you name a social media after an extinct after species? Thing. Like, I, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. Okay. I don't ahead. know. Um, I'm, I'm just where I am now. I'm, I'm, um, at Racio Linguistic with a C. <laughs> um, uh, on Twitter and at Betty Machete, it's E T T um, on Instagram. And yeah, please fill out the survey. All you have to do is submit a nomination, but there's other stuff for you to submit to if you wish. B I T dot L Y forward slash 2022 W O T Y. I will look forward to reading your submissions. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you, Joe. Nice yeah. to meet you too, Dr. Kelly. Thank and do you. You, and do you get to vote too, Dr. Kelly? I, I do. My my nominee was. I want to know what you. Yeah, it was women, life, freedom. Oh, all right. I, from the women of Iran. Okay, nice, mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. Well, there. You know what's in? We didn't get to talk about it. I'll talk about it with Joe. But the the beginning of the year. And they're, you know, similar, I guess, to me, to the Global Language Monitor. There are people who put out articles like, these are the words that are going to be the most popular this year. And I and I got one of those lists and like not one of those words became popular this year. It's just ridiculous. So there are other words that I think are going to do well. I think that one dark horse contender is ussy, that U-S-S-Y, which is anything with a whole. That's how we define it. Oh, wow. Anything with a hole could be an assy. Joe, did you know that? It could be a, I, I did not. A thrussy yeah. is your a throat th- hole. Thrussy. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a dog. You get it. Now, do you understand it. how it works? You can apply yeah, it. I completely, I can apply it to anything. So a donut, donussy. Donut. That sounds like a rap name. Okay. Yeah. But okay. I like that. So, 
that's going to work well. I think people are also putting a lot of weight behind Chief Twit and uh. Triple Demic. <laughs> Oh, okay, I can understand okay, that. Okay, yeah. triple demic. Yeah, that's a new one. You know what I think is a big word for the year? Denier. Denier is a good one. Denier yeah. is big. Like, everything's a denier. You could be any kind of a denier. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. You know, um, if, if all of these are like, what? Please, submit things that you like. That's all I'm interested in, is getting more stuff for more people who aren't like with. <laughs> that means you, Joe Masuri. <laughs> well, thank you, Kelly. I appreciate you taking the time. Bye.
So, Joe Masiri, so I really enjoyed having Dr. Kelly Elizabeth Wright. Did you enjoy her? Yes, I did. Very uh, intellectually stimulating. <laughs> intellectually stimulating. And not bad on the eyes. So, now, uh, one of the things we ta- I was just talking about at the end there with uh, Dr. Wright is there are all these words that they said were going to be used in the- that you're going to be hearing. This is an article from January 2021 in magazine called Lifestyle Asia. And it was 22 words you're going to be hearing and using often in 2022. New word 2022. So I'm going to read some. You tell me if you have used any of these words even once. Or if I've even heard them used in something. Here's word. Now keep in mind these are words. Some of them have already exist, but they're variations. First word. Blob. Be careful not to confuse this word with Bob, a hairstyle that really goes in and out of fashion with variations. Blobs fascinate scientists who claim they can be the source of major discoveries. Endowed with fascinating powers, blobs are composed of a single giant cell capable of moving and even transmitting knowledge to their fellow creatures. However, it is difficult to characterize them. They are neither animals nor plants nor mushrooms. In their natural state, these, organiz- these organisms live in forest litter, which is a new phrase for me. There you go. Uh, no, I have, uh, you know, it's funny because I, I did not hear of that word, but I heard about the giant bacteria. So, giant the, bacteria? the one that could be seen with the naked eye? No. Wait, did we cover this on your show? No, but I, I heard about it on a couple of news programs. Science. When? When? What's what's the giant it, bacteria? I feel like we we put this out on Facebook. It's page. it was it was in the uh, in one of the rainforests. I want to say the Amazon, but I'm not 100. Ah, uh, sure. yes, yes. This is in the summer, right? Yes. The, the giant, giant bacteria. bacteria. Yes, giant bacteria. No blobs, but we had giant, no blobs, bacteria. giant bacteria. Here's another one: the boomerang generation. Not so long ago, young adults who returned to live with their parents were looked upon with suspicion. They were regarded as failures, but things have changed with the pandemic, and we are now collectively rethinking the relationships between generations. I have never. I've heard it used, but I can't say this year. I mean, I heard it referred to in the past as like kids who were turning home. They call them the boomerang kids. Well, they, they obviously this site thought that it was going to get big. Here's another one. Cannamoms. Never heard of that. It says, while the stereotype person who uses cannabis on a daily basis is that they're young, maybe a student who's maybe underemployed, there are others who have adopted it as a regular habit. More and more mothers are taking micro doses of this soft drug to relax and help ease their mental load, as described by Daniel Simone Brand in the book Weed Mom, the kind of curious woman's guide to healthier relaxation, happier parenting, and chilling TF out. We all know what TF says. While cannabis are particularly vogue in North America, particularly in certain U.S. states where it's legal in Canada, the movement is growing and attracting more and more young parents. Will the canna couple be next? I've never heard this phrase. No, and, and the only thing I heard similar was Bill Maher and his show, apparently there are mothers in some of the states where mushrooms are legal who are microdosing on, on mushrooms. No, my, my, microdosing mushrooms is going to become a thing. It's going to be a, yeah. a therapeutic thing. Okay, there are a few words that I won't even get into. I thought cryptocurrency was going to get big. I don't think it's got any bigger. They had another word here called cheugi. 
Chaugi? Chaugi. It, it, it replaces the famous OK Boomer. Term refers to people who follow trends considered cheesy or out of date and embrace it. I haven't heard that word. I never heard that. It Sounds like Shapoopy. Stop. Okay. No, Psych- no. That famous song from, uh, what was it? Uh, what, what musical? Yeah, there was Shapoopy. a song called Shapoopy. Yeah, Shapoopy. Shapoopy. Da, 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 da. I did not see that. Michael movie. Crawford sang it in the movie adaptation of, was it? Oh, it was in The Music Man. Sorry. Okay. Didn't hear it. Didn't see it. Okay. Shapoopy. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Psychologistics. Starting in 2020, Michaels have created a mini, mini revolution in the streets of many cities. First, it was the community bike. work. Now it's time for psychologistics, specifically referring to the delivery by cargo bike. Capable of carrying dozens of kilos are increasingly used for last mile deliveries because they're fast, agile, and able to thread their way through the jungle of cities. Never you, heard you, of it. You you were supposed to be saying cycle logistics, not psycho logistics. No, I said cycle. I said cycle logistics. I heard psycho twice. That's so because just you, you're just projecting. All right, no, here's another one. I have not I have not heard that used. You I've never heard it. How about this one? Deconsumerism. Never Deconsum- heard that. I, I've heard that a couple of, maybe two or three times on news shows use that word. Didn't hear it. Frugalism. Never heard that one. You know, that's too it's like you're taking frugal and making an ism out of it. It's exactly. Gender fluid. Now, yeah. That that's not new. I did that didn't no. take off. Goat. That's not new and that didn't take off either. That's you know no. greatest greatest of all time. We all know what it means. Infodemic. No. That's that's just one of those words that popped up at the end of twenty twenty one and nobody took off with it. Okay. Jomo. It's an acronym in direct opposition for FOMO, which is fear of missing out, versus the joy of missing out. Never heard of it. I like Jomo. I, 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 I like Jomo. I like the idea, but I never heard of that word. You? Also sounds like something you get from your drug dealer. Stop. Mentrification. It's a scholarly term that refers to a well-known fact of women and their contributions being rendered invisible over the centuries by and for men. Inspired by the term gentrification, the word is theorized by the Australian writer and activist Van Batten. Spirit in cinema, astronomy, art, science, and definitely metrification to learn from. Albert Einstein had a wife, Meliva Marek Einstein, who he discovered the famous theory of with with whom he discovered the famous theory of relativity. Yet it's a safe bet that it's the first time you've ever heard of her participation. And that is true. I did not know mm-hmm. that his wife, Meliva Marek Einstein, worked with him on a relativity. So I guess. Metrification is a thing, but I never heard of that word. Did you? Nope, never heard of it. How about metaverse? Obviously, we've heard of it. Yes, we've heard of it. I don't feel it. That's old. I mean, when did, uh, when did, when did, uh, uh, what's his name at Facebook, uh, change the name of the company to meta? Uh, Like the beginning of the year. Okay. Metaverse. I'm sorry, metaverse. And then MYS, which is MYS. I don't understand. Philosophies of life centered around will being none of that took off. Neo pronouns. Never heard that one. No. Nope. We're talking about gender neutral neo pronouns. NFT. 
Well, yeah, well, yeah. That's that been around for a while. Yeah, I didn't know if that took off this year. Okay. I mean, most people, do, I mean, everybody should know that it's a non-fungible token. token. But does even people know what the word fungible even means? I don't know. Plastic crust. Never heard of that. Nope. Have you? Never heard Not have Never heard of says, plastic crust. Uh, plastic crust, it's the colored fragments that correspond to plastic microparticles released by the oceans. Phenomenon was discovered in 2016 by Portuguese scientists during an expedition on the island of Madeira. And unfortunately, this is probably the only place in the planet where plastic crusts can be seen. So well, basically, I the, that was going to take off. Uh, so, yeah. so basically, it's like the plastic particles are forming a saran wrap on top of the earth. Dude, you got me. How about this one? Slow working. How never never that? heard that. I, I, that's like a Windows thing, isn't it? Okay, here we go. <laughs> no, it's like your computer today. <laughs> today, thank you. Uh, how about this one? Uh, Web three. Never Web three. No, never heard of that. Woke. All right. Well, that did. Well, that's like, been around for a while. Yeah. All right. Here's another one. Zennials. It's you've heard of millennials, Generation Z. Now it's about the Zennials. Micro generation refers to the. Adolescents, that's A D U L, born between 92 and 98. They integrate characteristics of millennials and Gen Z, much to the lighter brands. TikTok and concerned about the environment, they embrace secondhand goods as well as having a chuggy, that other word, attitude. This, this article, they wanted to be hip and they're so Not. way TF off. So, there it is. Uh, but we talked in this episode about semantic change. We talked about the evolution of words. We talked about the global language monitor. Uh, and we talked about, you know, what the most popular words are. And hopefully you will vote if you want to be part of what the American dialect society is doing. They have the Word of the Year nominee submission form which is available on our Facebook page. And you can nominate the word you think is the most used or the best word of the year. What is your vote, Jones, here? I, I need to give it a little bit more thought. And I oh, have come on, you had two hours. I, I, I need to give it more thought. It's not something no, you just want no, to jump into. No, I want an answer right now. I don't uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm sorry. What? I'm very disappointed. Just so you know, very disappointed. I, you know, there's nothing that like you know just jumps out at me. You know. I, I feel the same way. I think denier is pretty good. That's what a lot of people call it. Whatever kind of denier you are, yeah. But I can't think of a good word. When I come back next week, you better have a word. Uh, maybe I will. Maybe I won't. I now, is there anything you want to share? I know there are some movies that you want to recommend. It's we're going into the new week. We're going into the new year. We want to get one more show in the year. Any movies that you love this year? Uh, I've actually been working on the list. Uh, right. I will will say you this. No, I will say this. It's it's been independent films. Uh, I mean, studios put out the big box office, rah rah rah, whatever. But there's a lot of independent films that don't go noticed, and a lot of good genre films. So, anything you particularly recommend before we go? 
uh, I would recommend right now available on Amazon Video, The Nanny. Highly recommend that as well. Which is is a, a very good genre bending uh, film. So check that out. You won't be disappointed. And uh, what else? What else? What else? I did want to uh, give a little plug out to a, a film called The uh, Apology, uh, uh. which is in theaters. Uh, will be on Shutter soon. Uh, Allison star lock is the director and writer uh she's a, a genre fan who's been been working on reality shows and stuff for a few years and uh that sounds that, like a horror itself it's 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 a real interesting premise and did you interview her yes i did if you go to fearsmag.com you can you can listen Wait, to can the interview we, can we play it here we could we could play it here would you like a snippet for next yeah week? all right well let's let's play the trailer and then we'll go to the Joe Masseri interview with who? Uh, Allison Starlock. There it is. This month is the 20th anniversary of Sally's disappearance. Why do they call it an anniversary like it's something to celebrate? After all this time, what do you need to help you feel whole again? I could never feel whole again. And what would you do if you found out who it was? I, I, I mean, I'd call the police. You'd call the police? You wouldn't want to tie him up? Don't drag me into that. If it's not revenge, what, what would you want? Welcome to Terragram, FearsMag.com's conversations with the creators of science fiction, fantasy, and horror entertainment. I'm your host, Joseph Masiri, executive editor. Twenty years after the disappearance of her daughter, recovering alcoholic Darlene Hagen is preparing to host her family's Christmas celebration with her best friend Gretchen. Late Christmas Eve, Darlene's estranged ex-brother-in-law, Jack, arrives unannounced, bearing nostalgic gifts and a heavy secret. Soon, Darlene finds herself caught between reason and ruthless instinct. Trapped together by a dangerous storm, a battle of wits escalates to a violent game of revenge. The Apology will be in theaters and streaming on Shudder and AMC Plus beginning December 16, 2022. The film stars Anna Gunn, Linus Roche, and Janine Garofalo. Making her feature film writing-directing debut with The Apology, Allison Starr Locke earned a BFA in film writing from USC 
where she won the Jack Nicholson Screenwriting Award. She began her writing career as a story producer for reality TV and has written, directed, and produced numerous shorts. Her favorite, was laureled up by the Los Angeles Film Festival and the Denver Film Festival. Her script, The Projectionist, won second place at Slamdance in the horror thriller category. Her scripts have placed in numerous contests, including The Blood List, Nichols, Screamfest, Women in Horror Film Festival, Scriptapalooza, and Fright Night. She lives with her husband and daughter in the Los Angeles area, and we recently spoke about her film, The Apology, and what it took to bring to the screen. I wanted to ask, as a storyteller and a filmmaker, there are many options you probably had in thinking of what you might do as your first theatrical feature film as a director, what was it about the apology that uh, made you decide this was going to be the story to tell? Uh, Well, on a practical level, it was the first one someone said yes to. (laughs) (laughs) I had uh, had been writing the script for a long time. I was in a writer's group. Uh, My friend John Sylvain was the first one who really said, like, I think you should really get serious about making this one. I think this one is really special. So I give him a lot of credit for pushing me to continue to work on this specific script as opposed to some of the other ones I was working on. And then uh, my my old friend Stacey Jorgensen, who's a producer at Company X, She and I made shorts together and I worked on her first feature with her. So I sent the script to her and said, can you read it and see if you know of anybody who might be interested in reading it? And she called me back and said, I want to produce it and I will try to bring it to my company. And I was like, I'm sorry, what do you mean? It was a little fairy tale with that initial setup, as you've heard, a little hard. But uh, that initial thing of, of having my good friend be my champion and lift me up into this kind of opportunity when I had made shorts, I had been staying home with my daughter who's autistic and advocating for her. And I was just trying to get back into work and to try to make my first feature finally. To have somebody like Stacy and the folks at Company X, Kim Sherman, who really became my real creative partner on it, Lisa Whalen, all of these fine folks like trust me and give me this opportunity. It just was life-changing and not just in a career sense, in a confidence and just sort of self-fulfilling kind of way. So I knew I wanted to make my first movie be about motherhood. And most of the things that I write about are about being a mom and about that experience. That was really, (laughs) that was the first one is someone said yes. We all tend to dread the holidays because situations that can involve with family and such. And the apology is is a very complex thriller. What was that core initial idea that gave rise to this story? And were there elements that were drawn from real life experiences or other things you may have sourced, like things you may have read in the newspaper to craft this tale? Well, you're very astute. Absolutely. It's something that came from things that I had absorbed from other folks to begin with. I, I'd been interested in true crime stories. I'm a big horror hound as well. And uh, I'd been learning, hearing these stories about these families and been fascinated with it. And then I had a dream about that knock at the front door in the middle of the night. And I went to it and a man on the other side said, I know what happened to your daughter. And I was like, what the fuck? 
this is intense. And so, and I thought that's such a universal fear, a knock at the door in the middle of the night. And then another universal fear is, you know, something happens to your child. So I just kept layering that and realizing that the reason I was so connected to all of those stories was because I related to a lot of these details of what that experience was like, just being a mother myself. My daughter has special needs, trying to be there for her in a world that is not so accommodating. It's interesting when you're making a film and being this is the first time that you're directing, I and other colleagues feel that a, a film is made three times. It's made on the page, it's made in the production, and then it's made in the editing room. 100%. From where this story started to where the audiences will now encounter the finished product, how much, if at all, did the story change and what surprised you most about it? It changed constantly. Uh, yeah, I think there was always this, there was, there's a whole bunch of this film that's the same from the first draft as it is now. But there is also a whole bunch that has changed every step of the way. A, a lot of what I realized over the course of writing it was how little I needed. Uh, I thought I needed flashbacks. I thought I needed huge sections of dialogue. I mean, it's a very dialogue-heavy film anyway, but there was a whole lot more. <laughs> and, uh, and just really learning how much you can convey and explore with less, especially when you have incredible artists that you're working with. I mean, I had this incredible production design team that's told so much about the history of this woman and her family in that space. And I had these incredible actors that, of course, you know, you could give them one line and it means 60 things at once and you feel the weight of that. Mm. Yeah, I think it just, it kept just learning how little you needed how to be more efficient with your storytelling, but also how to like, let your freak flag fly, right? Like if my obsession is, you know, we're both horror fans. It's like, if your obsession is some of this dark stuff, like, you know, what is your specific take on that? What is something that's, what's fascinating to you about that aspect of those stories? So for me, one of the things that's really fascinating about uh, stories about killers is the why, you know, like I love The Vanishing, for example, the idea that that was a really fascinating thing for me to be thinking about as I was making the film, because it was like that movie was sort of the exact opposite, where you learned that basically the why was to just see if he could it was like an experiment almost with spoiler alert on the 40 year old movie. But <laughs> but it's like for me, it was like I was much more interested in uh, the role that sort of gender expectations play with regard to violence against women, like uh, Jack talks about feeling irrelevant and feeling the weight of his family and what his role is in life and how that contributed to his own extreme selfishness, to put it lightly. Just those kinds of things, just like exploring that stuff uh, within the, the lovely open world of horror movies was super fun. It's been a renaissance year for female filmmakers and, and especially oh, yeah. in the in the horror genre. And as somebody who's been passionate about uh, genre entertainment for years, I think one of the things that's happening is that the female storytellers are taking the narrative back to its roots where mm. the emotional content is there. And they're translating it in such a way that regardless of gender, it's a universality to it that really elicits the emotional response and not just 
the horror, the scares and, and all that as a, as a storyteller, as someone working industry in the industry, do you feel that? Is that something you aspire to? What's, what's your take on the, on the genre and the stories you want to tell? Oh, absolutely. I think that's really astute. I, 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 I'm really interested in seeing more. I think there's in general more of a push for let's bring in specific POVs, right? Like let's bring in women, people of color, folks at different, of different ages, people from different countries, all of that stuff, because you know, you could tell the same story, but you're telling it from each of these people's perspectives. It's again, it's like, what's your fascination and what does it mean to you? You know, the idea of like, I love thrillers. I love revenge movies. I love all of this kind of stuff. I love Christmas horror. I love all that. What's my, what's my, you know, these are some of my favorite things in life. So, you know what they say, make the movie you want to see. I wanted to see something that was, I like to call it, I like to joke that it's domestic horror is my jam, but I like the idea of sort of turning our cameras and making us look at women more and looking, making us look at women, do things that we have disregarded as an like saying that it's unimportant like baking and cleaning and preparing to host or caring for children or any of these other things and putting a real emphasis on them and talking about I do firmly believe that specificity equals universality so if you are talking about the specifics of what your life experience and your point of view is it gets to people's hearts quicker because they they're like oh this is there's there's always going to be things about those truth-telling details that they can relate to what mm. did my mother do what would i do as a mother you know those sorts of things so after the fans have a chance to uh experience the apology is there anything else that you're working with that you might be going on to next or is there a couple of things that you're not at liberty to talk about at this moment that, that we just got to keep an eye out in the trades to to see what comes well, I'm actually so fresh that uh, they, just, they literally just like put this movie out into uh, people's awareness. So I need representatives. I need all that stuff. And so I'm just still, uh, I'm writing and I've been writing a whole bunch of different kinds of scripts and I'm kind of deciding which one I want to push as my baby next. So I have like a slasher film, a haunted house film, a sort of war survival horror thing in mind too. And we'll see. I mean, maybe something else is, is going to capture my imagination more, but yeah, I'm always, always writing. I mean, you know, all the time that I was home with my daughter or making shorts before that or working on reality TV, I was always writing scripts. So now I'm just obsessed with like, can't wait to do it again. You know, you, your first feature, you learn so much. Mm. Uh, about how to do how, about the process on a ground level, but also about what you care about as a filmmaker and what you want to say, what you want to explore, how you want to approach that exploration. So I just can't wait to get at it again. Like, let's do it. I was wondering, your your husband is also a uh, filmmaker. Yeah. So yeah. during the process, was he hands on or hands off, and how did that whole experience go? Well, I think uh, you can't be married to another creative person without constantly sort of checking with each other on things, right? It's like a instant workshop. So he was, <laughs> you know, I have to give him a huge amount of credit. Absolutely. Like not only did he take care of our daughter so many times solo while I was working on this film, but he also like helped coach me emotionally and story-wise <laughs> throughout the process. <laughs> he has, uh, he's a writer and an editor and uh, he's in 
I mean, obviously I'm biased because I'm married to the man, but he's incredibly smart. He's really funny and he has a really strong sense of story. You know, sometimes he would give me notes and I would say, "Mm, not doing that. That's not this film, but they were always thoughtful and very often very helpful, uh, much more often than not. Uh, Him being an editor, it was also, it was always like, you don't need that. You don't need that. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's very, it's very, very helpful to have um, your partner also be a creative. And then to also be, I'm very fortunate to have so many creative friends as well. So it was, I have a good, good village to draw from. Well, congratulations on the apology coming out. And you've intrigued me with some of your other scripts you're working on. So I hope we have a chance to talk again soon. Yes, please. Thank you so much, Joseph. It was nice to meet you. The music heard in the background is by composer Yuli Lamour, who scored the apology. Joe Masiri interview with Allison Starlock for a film I've not seen, but you said it was great, Joe. I I enjoyed it very much so. Really, really interesting concept, too. All right. Well, I'm going to have to watch. Send me the link. Okay? Where's my link? (laughs) Where's my link? My link. All right. So you are tuned to listener-sponsored radio, WBAI 99.5 FM in New York and on the web at WBAI.org. We've been speaking about words. We had an interview with the director of a new film, Joe Love, the we have encouraged you to send in your nomination for the 2022 Word of the Year to the American Dialect Society. If you are just tuning in now and you don't know what that is, well, just go to the Night Shift Facebook page and there's a link there where you can nominate the word. Because since 1990, the American Dialect Society has selected Words of the Year to highlight language change, to bring a few aspects of the study of linguistics to the public's attention and have a little bit of fun. So the vote is held at the end of the year at Society's annual uh, conference, which will be happening in about two weeks. So you have a little bit of time. The final vote will be January 6th. And we suggest you submit whatever your word of the year was. So Joe Masiri. Mike Sargent. uh, People should pledge, shouldn't they? They They should pledge because it's that time of the year. Yes, it is. It's always that time of the year. 212-209-2950. If you've enjoyed the show, if you were intellectually stimulated, 212-209-2950. Pledge $30 because we've been on for 30 years. Night shift. There you go. There it is. That's a nice round number.
on Tuesdays from 5 to 6 p.m. for the Independent News Hour, the weekly radio show of the Independent, New York City's radical newspaper. Each week, we speak with the activists, organizers, and social movement thought leaders who are fighting for a more just and equitable New York. That's the Independent News Hour, Tuesdays, 5 to 6 p.m., only here on WBAI 99.5 FM. This is the mic check for Cat Radio Cafe. Testing. Testing. Uh, tune in to Cat Radio Cafe Tuesday night at 9 here on WBAI. I'm Janet Coleman. I'm David Dozer. The Displaced Playwright on Tuesday, December 20th at 9 p.m. We'll be joined by internationally acclaimed filmmaker Andy Timoner to discuss her new doc, Last Flight Home, a fearless and riveting account of her own family's courage and grace in helping their beloved 92-year-old father fulfill his wish to die. Tuesday night at 9 here on WBAI. Cat Radio Cafe. Hey, do cats drink coffee? If it spills into their saucer of beer. Oh, of course, so do I. Ah. Leonardo Flores. I'm part of Code Pink's Latin American team, and we're trying to raise money to pay for the rent for the tower at Four Times Square. That's how we're able to broadcast to you. And a reminder that this is listener-supported radio. It's community radio. It's independent radio. One of the few places where you can go to hear the truth about U.S. foreign policy, policy of death and destruction and militarism. Please, please donate. Go to Call 212-209-2950 to donate. Call, please. The number is 212-209-2950. You can also donate online at wbai.org. We have this really incredible opportunity in the next couple of years to fuse the peace and the climate movements together because they can't have one without the other. And how are you going to learn about that if not by supporting this incredible radio station, WBAI? Again, the number is 212-209-2950. Please call and donate what you can. You can also do it online at WBAI.org. Together we'll make these. They say code war. We say code ring. Where we're moving on Hey, this is Baby K. And this is DJ Kyle McNeil. Of The Sweet Spot. And we are so excited to announce our brand new time slot, Tuesday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. Same great soulful sounds, old and new. Brand new day, Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Only on WBAI 99.5 FM. New York's Pacifica Radio. Sweet Hi, this is Eric Anderson. This is Rosie Perez. You're tuned to WBAI. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? This is LL Cool J. This is Dave Marsh. Hi, this is Tony Bennett. Hi, this is Julie Cruz from New York City, and you're listening to WBAI-FM. The soundtrack of New York City. Non-commercial and with no additives. We're listener-supported. I don't listen to the radio. I don't like stuff that sucks. You talking to me? <laughs> I love this radio station. You talking to me? Yo, check this out. This is Chuck, the public enemy number one, the rapper without a pause, bringing the noise and fighting.